Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Samit Mehta, who's an engineer, investor and executive in Silicon Valley for the past 20 years. A prior to founding Trenite uh, Hill, Samit spent seven years in M&A and strategic venture capital with Cisco where he established and led the venture capital effort in India. He's developed a diverse network of business leaders, entrepreneurs, investors in both US and India. And he was previously with Lehman Brothers in a technology investment banking group. Uh, Samit holds a bachelor's in electrical engineering from Princeton University, and he's done his MBA from Stanford. Uh, welcome to the show, Samit. Thank you so much, Rohit, for having me on. Awesome. So, uh, uh, Samit, uh, you have an interesting uh, career. How did you get into this crazy world of venture capital? I, uh, yeah, I uh, started it, I, I got exposure to venture capital uh, at Cisco Systems. So I had, uh, after graduating from business school, I, just a little bit of background, like you mentioned, I was an electrical engineer. I kind of always had a, a, just a tinkerer. I always had an interest in technology. And uh, I remember hearing about Cisco Systems back when I was at Lehman Brothers uh, and actually I had a feeling that they did very briefly overtake Microsoft in market cap uh, at some point. That was obviously the heyday of, you know, net, uh, uh, the telcos and networking and all that kind of thing. So um, I wanted to go. I was very interested in investing, but I wanted to do it from a very informed technical standpoint. And at that time, Cisco was was active and probably 50 percent of my job was M&A, but 50 okay. percent was strategic investing at Cisco. And, and, and the idea there was, if it was not a company we wanted to acquire, they would look at um, you know adjacent markets, let's say. So something that's not directly competitive, not directly, but where maybe over time, it would help inform the company by being active, uh, being an active, active investor in uh, you know, in, for example, like uh, companies that were maybe doing network applications. So Cisco didn't really do that, but okay, we might want to look at different applications, whether it's video, security, so on and so forth, and start by making investments there and then use that to inform uh, the strategic direction. So that's that was my first exposure. But after a few years of doing the, the you know, but at the end of the day, it's still corporate venture. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, you just, uh, I think things are structured a little bit differently nowadays, but I like the investing part a lot more than the acquisition and M&A part. Um, but the investing part wasn't as immediately impactful to Cisco. And then that just kind of got reflected in, in many ways based on your influence in the company. And so it was a really good window into that world, but not somewhere I would say if, you, if you're, the way the group was structured at the time, if your passion was investing, it, it was probably good to get the exposure and then and then go and try something um, as a direct investor working for a fund or starting a fund, which is what I did. Interesting. And, you, you know, you worked uh, in Cisco. Was, was corporate venture uh, different from mm -hmm. how you uh, look at decision making at, at your own firm? Great question. And there, I would caveat that there are different models now, and some of that's evolving as well. Uh, but at Cisco, the and I think it's very commonplace, the, uh, the venture capital group was not, for example, part of treasury or trying to figure out how to get the highest ROI on a certain asset class. It was really something that had to be sponsored and very, um, at least sponsored or linked 
uh, you know, linked loosely to an existing business unit um, within Cisco. So Cisco was pretty big by the time I, I joined in 2000, which now is clearly many, many years ago, but I was there for about seven years and, and they, uh, you know, so if you were investing in, let's say, a company that's doing some video compression technology, you would have to coordinate with the, uh, you know, the cable termination group that that worked with cable companies and sold with, uh, routers to cable companies to say, hey, this is pretty interesting. We want to know more about it. And so the 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 internal buy-in was working with a lot of product people who don't necessarily have like finance backgrounds, right. Uh, or, or backgrounds in investing. Uh, and so, you know, one hand you kind of get really interesting automatic technical and product due diligence, as far as evaluating a company that maybe a, a, a VC wouldn't have directly. Um, on the flip side, it was a little bit restrictive because there could be a company that'd be a great investment. Yeah. And you, you know, you're just trying to, you know it, you know, you know, meaning, um, and you can't really do anything about it without a uh, without a sponsor. So that was the big difference. Yeah. Interesting, and you, you know, as as you pointed out, you've been investing since two thousand. And what what were some of the significant changes in venture that you've seen over the last two decades? Especially, you know, uh, you've seen uh, the uh, the big downturn which happened in two thousand eight, and uh, and COVID, which had been such an inflection point. Uh, where there's been a lot of uh, investments which have been having, uh, which where you know the uh, the fundraising ha- has really accelerated in the last couple of years, uh, but also the the recent downturn which has happened in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, so you know, you know, how how do you see the whole trajectory? Because you have had so much of experience uh, investing in both US as well as in in, in India. If I were to, there's a few different things, but if I were to name one core trajectory, it would be that the size of venture capital funds have increased, The number one, and then highly correlated to that, the scale of outcomes have, have, has increased and correlated to that, the time period where a company stays private has increased. So yeah. all of these things, so you're, you, you, and I think this, a lot of this started to change with, there were some great, great, great big outcomes before, but um, and and you just saw slowly, particularly with some of the social media companies, you know, coming out in the you know early knots, mid knots, you uh, you know, as as a as a, this is what I observed, just being in that ecosystem, right? If you're a venture capitalist at a pretty big fund, you know, it it's it's you know one company that becomes worth ten billion dollars, yeah. right? Can just be worth more than everything else that that fund invested in combined by let's say four or five other partners. So the incentive and the dynamic changes quite a bit to go out and find that. I mean, everyone's obviously trying to find the next biggest thing, but um, two things happen. When you get these big outcomes, you can raise bigger funds. So the funds got a lot bigger. The third thing is, um, so the runway for the companies got a lot longer. Um, I was an investor, for example, in Palantir. When I invested there, I was a small investor. Um, at the time, they said, we, we have zero plans to go public. This was uh, with Granite Hill. I invested back in 2010. And a uh, small amount of money, not a huge one, but still turned out to be a, a big one for us. But yeah, I mean, we, I mean, it was like a 12-year, the holding period was longer than the typical life of a fund for some of the early investors. That's true even for some of the huge 
outcomes recently. Uh, I know this is a fact for Zoom. Uh, I was an investor in Sentinel One. I mean, we came in in 2013. The company did very, very well and went public nine years later. A typical fund life is 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so that's another thing. Yeah. Even the fund life, everything's just longer and bigger. Yeah. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you, you made a very interesting point about the timelines of companies being private. And, you know, Bill Curley, who's a, who's a legendary VC, uh, I, I benchmark once mentioned that, you know, uh, Airbnb made a big mistake of staying private for so long. But, but what, what are your thoughts? Do you think companies are going to stay longer, uh, private much longer? Or do you think, uh, you know, earlier mm. companies used to go public and that was a much better strategy? What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I think it's going to remain in a situation, depending on the type of company. So I think, and it's just, I know that's it's not a cop-out answer, but uh, I would say they will, I, especially for enterprise tech, I think they're going to stay private longer because enterprise technology is typically doesn't have network effects or any kind of viral nature to it. And so, you know, it's uh, a lot more in the side of, um, they, they use this overused term flywheel, but it's on the size, it's on the side of just, you know, base execution and making sure because the sales cycles are longer, you know, you're not selling to someone who's, you know, baited by a click. You're usually selling to slightly more, you know, tech savvy, sophisticated buyer, whether it's a CTO or CIO or CISO or what have you. So I think enterprise companies will stay private longer because um, you can kind of ride through some of the early unpredictabilities without getting punished, you, you know, without getting punished by the stock market, let's say if one quarter doesn't work out and you can kind of um, build up to a, a pipeline, at least that's, that's kind of the way I looked at it, where you start to get some predictability in the quarter. So you don't have to be profitable, but just predictive, predict, a little more sense of predictability on how things work. Whereas the, I, I think I'm not a consumer investor, but my understanding is with, 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 with companies like that, whether it's Airbnb, you know, you get, you have tons of like immediate metric data, and then you can just kind of see the algorithm or the pattern working. And it's, a, I think it's just a little more predictable. And, and maybe in those cases, I don't want to speak obviously for such a legendary investor, but I think in those cases where it's a consumer situation, then there are benefits for going public, like transparency and uh, uh, some, some internal discipline and that kind of thing. So if like the core engine of growth is, is doing really well, you, you'll be fine in the stock market. Uh, but maybe you get the benefits of, of you know, some other, some other things. Um, and of course, you get liquid. So it depends on also when you when you invested. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, and, and and you know you've been investing for for close to around two decades. What do you think would have been some of your biggest misses, and and did it alter your style of investing? My uh, biggest miss was, uh, you know, I was not going to be a lead investor, but I was. I, I could have gotten in. I was invited through many. I met the CEO. I met. The earliest investor, um, and when Zoom was, I think, got a private round at a, like maybe eight hundred, seven hundred million dollar valuation. I, I could have put in a couple million bucks. It, it would have been, uh, and and I just kind of held off the pursuit a little bit because uh, one of the people that introduced me just said, "Yeah, this you know this other fund is leading it. They're paying a crazy valuation. You know." The, don't bother. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and I, and I missed it. My instinct was, was a little bit to do it because they were just so focused on product. And I had actually covered, uh, the adjacent technology of video and, and, uh, and, uh, voice over IP at Cisco. So uh, back when Cisco had bought WebEx, so the founder of zoom kind of was at WebEx before that. And so I kind of, I was like, yeah, these, 
existing platforms suck. And, and the big, like I'll tell, and not to talk too much about like the, the dumb thing that I did, but you know what I really liked about it, and you can see it play out right now. But this was eight years ago. Was I'm just going to optimize this for the just what we, you and I were doing at the beginning of this podcast? Optimize this for the computer microphone and the computer speaker, like that simple, no extra equipment, and make that as as good and seamless as possible. And that that kind of caught me, and I was like that makes sense yeah. <laughs> from a usability standpoint. I had seen Cisco had this ridiculous product um, called telepresence, which had like, you know, trying to recreate uh, a, a real time meeting. And this is obviously way before COVID. And it was just like, you, you would need an IT professional to install something like that. They had huge flat screens yeah. and then just multiple routers. You need to be a CCN Cisco net qualified Cisco certified network engineer to wire all that thing together. Um, and, uh, and I, I've been away from Cisco long enough. I don't mind dissing it a little bit, but it was just like, it was just ridiculous. Like, I don't know why anybody would do that. Uh, and, and it, it never went anywhere. And, and, and that was also kind of when I knew I had to leave Cisco. I'm like, this is, this is not where the next stuff is coming, even within the industry. Uh, and then the, the other, uh, well, I, I think I gave you a pretty big miss there. Um, Okay, I can't think of the other ones right now, but uh, there, there were a couple, but not not, not a crazy amount. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And that, that just means, you know, it's interesting people talk about misses and uh, I can verify this if you ever need to. But yeah, sometimes people make up their misses because it just signals that they had access to the deal. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I did ask to invest in Dropbox from somebody I knew who worked there very early. And but they already had Square. And they didn't need my money, right? That's half the time they need money. And uh, I think I got I got free storage from them back in. Uh, you know, I still have it actually. <laughs> but I, I, I had the I had the right instinct. I just just didn't have a, a way to get into that one. But interesting. Uh, but you know, on that point, I think if you have that. There are now the, the markets evolved, and if you know people, uh, sort of aside. We have a non sequitur, but sometimes you can't. Like we got into Palantir through secondary. Oh, nice. uh, we're a small fund, and and that's what they wanted. They were doing an employee liquidity program at the time, and this is all the way back in 2010. But um, that's how we got in. So sometimes there's a way you can get in, even as a smaller fund or as an, an individual investor. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, those are, those are a couple of big ones. Interesting. And um, uh, you know, uh, what advice would you give to your portfolio companies when it comes to run away and burn? Given the environment, you know, where uh, looks like you know there'll be there'll be less capital for early stage uh, companies going forward. It's a really really good question, and I my advice is to err on the side of hiring more slowly uh, in general. So I, I'm a big believer that the, the biggest war is for talent and for recruiting, but I think because of that, it's easy to fall into the trap of just getting getting hiring someone for the sake of hiring someone and showing the growth. Um, and I, I, you know, eventually you need people and you're not always going to get like the very best person, especially as a startup, you know, how do you track the best people unless you have like some huge reputation and you're the former founder of X. And even then to get good people is very, very hard. They're expensive. They're, they're expensive. They know they're good. Yeah. Um, and so my, you know, my advice is, uh, get get a few really good people and you have to just crank and squeeze as much out of them as you can. And then once they, you start to get some better alignment, like there's just, well, there's a lot of like variables and unknowns also early on. And so some of the mistakes I've seen or that I've even made is that, you know, you hire too soon and then you realize that person's not right. And then you get a fire and a, and a hiring and a firing is very, it's just, it's costly. Usually the people 
you know, it's, it's just costly all around. So, um, yeah, my advice would be in the, in the early phases, take it slow. Don't go for like a, in sometimes even ignore the VC. Sometimes I would say like, don't, I mean, we had something when we had like, you know, our, our, one of our investors came is like, you need a CMO, you need a chief marketing market. You sort of had this, like, you know, check the box. You need these things to be this profile of startup. But the reality was where we were at that stage, there wasn't enough for the person to CMO on, you know, there wasn't enough for them to, to do. And, uh, and so that, you know, that'd be another piece of advice is slow down and make sure you have, you know, two X the workload you think that person's going to need. And not, not saying you work the person to death, but, you know, the, the worst thing to have is someone that it, it just burnt, you know, your pre-revenue and you're burning cash and you have someone that that's like 50% occupied because there's not, a, you know, you either don't have enough revenue or you don't have enough. And this is particularly on the sales and marketing side. Yeah. You don't have enough for them to do. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Got it. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about Granite Hill. Uh, what, what was the thesis of the fund and how does the decision making process work uh, in a fund where you're a partner? Yeah. Our first fund uh, was a unanimous, uh, there were three of us partners and it was a unanimous investment committee, but with a fair amount of leeway in the sense that, um, you know, let's say my background was at Cisco. So I really brought a lot of the tech play into it. Um, with Sentinel One, I got buy-in from everybody, but it was, and we're an earlier fund and one of our competitive advantage was it could be pretty lean. We didn't have some gigantic, super long process all the time, particularly for an early company, but it was unanimous because, and this was, it still didn't always work, but it was unanimous from two perspectives. Well, uh, you know, one is that if the deal turns sour, uh, there's just less, less finger pointing. Um, because in the end of the day, there, there's less of the, uh, uh, you know, I was always worried about that or, or yeah, you know, I, I, I brought that up as a concern or whatever. There's just like, well, you could have just voted against it and killed it, you know? And so I think having that maybe, maybe not feasible when you have 10 partners, but I think we have a few partners to get to just have a unanimous system. Got it. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was about to ask, uh, how do you, how do you create an environment of safety so that, you know, everyone can discuss and debate freely. Uh, but, uh, you know, how about with, with partners as well as with the founders that you pack, uh, how do you, how do you build that environment of safety so that you can discuss? Yeah, I don't feel like we had that in the first one. I feel we have this in my current fund and the, the reason is the, the best way to make an environment. And I, I'm taking your question to me where you can kind of have an open discussion about things, but also feel free to like stick your neck out and try something out there interesting or new or innovative. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I strongly believe that it's going to sound weird. I think everyone should be of similar age. Oh, okay. Or, or you know, kind of a like peers, you can, you can call it, let's say some people mature faster. I mean, but you know, kind of like a 10 year like age group for the decision makers, I think is good. I think it's good. I think, I think you're going to be more similar culturally uh, and that helps to foster, you know, the exchange of thoughts, exchange of ideas without the fear of being wrong or the fear of, okay. uh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You, you pointed out, you know, uh, because I, I used to work for a, for a founder, uh, who is uh, much younger to me. Uh, how, how do you, uh, uh, you know, look at dynamics of a relationship where the founder is much younger than you and, uh, and, you know, how do you, you know, build a, build a, a relationship of trust and 
uh, you know, respect with uh, the founder who's much younger uh, and who hasn't matured that much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I I haven't had just because we're we're more an enterprise. You you don't usually have like a twenty three year old person that's yeah. selling enterprise tech. Uh, yeah. And so there's a, a little bit less, a little lesser, but I, I mean, now I'm of an age where almost all founders are younger than me, not all, but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I'm in my mid forties. So, you know, you, you, you do have that. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a little cliche, but I would say just don't, you know, try to just make sure you speak respectfully. And, and, and the way I think about it is for a founder to go out there and do that at a young age, this is assuming that you've they've already passed the filter for you to invest, right? If it's a young founder, you just simply don't invest. I and mean, I've seen some founders, I've seen crazy things where like, you know, I try to stay away from like these incubator conferences and things like that. You see like founders, like you're just trying to get a visa to come into the country. Like there's just, there's, there's just all sorts of that. But like you're the founder, you know, he's got onto something good. Like the company we talked about earlier, or, you know, uh, uh, I, I just look at it as, uh, you know, the same way that, Kind of like with kids, you know, just don't don't talk down to them. Like talk in an elevating way from your experience. Assume they have the experience and let them come and ask you and say, actually, you know, I've never done that. Um, so yeah, got it. Got it. Interesting. And uh, uh, you, especially for founders that you mentor, how do you approach training and mentorship? And you know, what works and what doesn't work uh, when you're trying to mentor founders? Yeah, it's uh, that's a bit. It's a good question. I have to say, it's a bit personality dependent. Um, okay. You know, um, I think what the one thing that works, and this is an old psychological trick, is like you know, you just make it that person's idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, rather than saying you know you know that not that anyone says it this bluntly, but like hey, you need help with like culture, HR. Like you should talk to this guy. I know that may be true. You know, maybe just don't say it out up front, right? And uh, and so I made the mistake of introducing founder to a couple people that were successful founders or also on the journey, but further along. Mm. And I think it got viewed a little bit like in a, in a, in a way, it, it, just like the natural human reaction was a little bit more like, but I'm a great founder. You don't think I'm good? Like, why am I talking to this guy? Uh, and so if I had approached it, in a way, which just like uh, without an agenda, yeah. and just let let them naturally socialize things. Uh, I think it'll, that'll come out better. Interesting, and and uh, you know, especially when it comes to founders when they're hiring, what what do you think are the biggest hiring mistakes that founders make? Uh, biggest hiring mistake is the, the, I don't want to say mistake. The two pitfalls is does the person you're hiring have a startup mindset, um, and it's very different. If you're pre-IPO, it's different. You're like, okay, I need someone to run events for me. Fine, get the events person from. But if you're like, hey, I'm getting my first person that's going to handle marketing or lead generation or things like that, my, or my first salesperson, like, do they have that startup mindset? Um, and yeah. oftentimes, people with great resumes are not good startup people. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, what do you think are the, are the single biggest firing mistakes executives make? Um, yeah. Uh, when the biggest firing mistakes is when they let and hiring to some degree, when they when when a company this I've seen this in the in the growth phase, so not the very early start phase, but as you get and not quite like IPO, but just in that in between area where all the teams are growing, and uh, I think the biggest mistake they made is they allow a certain type of person when they get hired as a mid to 
high level executive that 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 likes to bring their people on. So they'll be like, okay, I am now VP of finance or SVP finance, or I am now head of channel marketing, right? First thing I do, oh, these are the three people I've worked with at these other companies, we need to hire them too, mm. right? And then they look at who's already there and they're like, well, that's not my guy. That's not my boy. That's not my girl, you know? Uh, and they'll find a way to like, you know, squeeze them out and it gets political. And so I think the biggest hiring mistake is hiring empire builders or people that's like, I need to have my own little, you know, uh, I, I think it's been terrible because sometimes you get the one person that's good, but you, you know, for your company, for you, you know, they're more like into consolidating their, their position and their influence in the company. Um, and they have their kind of loyal fleet and there's some value to that. I mean, it, it, you know, but that's something, it's a pitfall. Like I would just say it's more than a mistake. Like, like if, if I were to hire somebody or I, like an executive and, if I were, and, and he's saying, okay, I'm hiring this person and they're going to bring these other people. I'd be like, every other person should, they should be interviewed by people who have nothing to do with them, who've never worked with them uh, and put them through the ringer. Hmm, interesting. And, and, you know, I, I want to understand, especially when it comes to the founder's uh, perspective, uh, how should they approach investors uh, and uh, how should they select investors for for their for the companies? And uh, should they should they look at you know uh, brand names like Sequoia, or, you know Tiger Global, and look at the valuation of, of the funds? Or you know, especially when it comes to early stage, they should look at you know what partner the part how can the partner or the fund can add value to me? It's interesting you mentioned that. So those two names you mentioned itself, they're very different. They're very very different culturally, and and so. Uh, you know, some funds that have more of the traditional Sand Hill Road, you know, Silicon Valley DNA uh, tend to be a little more hands-on. Uh, and some of the other ones tend to be, uh, and I think, I, think, I think the industry's moving this way, tend to be a little bit more, you know, just down to the numbers, right? Just numbers oriented, like, yeah, we have a brand, but we're investors and um, here to just make money, not necessarily add a lot of value. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and that could be good sometimes. So sometimes you, you know, you're like, Hey, I just need like a reputable investor, you know, to fill out a round and, and, you know, kind of help when I call them, but not really kind of get into my stuff because I have enough people. So it all depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, but you're, 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 and I, and I, and I just mentioned, because you just mentioned two brands that are entirely different in their approach and how they work with with founders. So I think it, you really have to, it's a matching problem. Like the one you got to get, I mean, the base thing is like someone's willing to invest in you. Sometimes yeah. you have to overlook some things that aren't a fit to be totally honest. But if you're like, yeah, if you have the luxury of choosing and uh, what, what was the other part of your question? Brand brand name versus non-brand name or, or what was the, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, especially. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I believe in the early stages, you should be less concerned about the brand. Okay. I mean, you should be concerned about the brand as a fit. Like, you know, you probably don't want a hedge fund to be your early stage investor. Uh, but, you know, I, I, or maybe you do. Depends. I mean, I've had that where I know a new person, I really respect them. But uh, I, I think it's um, the, the big brands going back to that original question about like, where's the trajectory of this industry going? Yeah. So, you know, um, if what you need from that investor is is if if your founder's like I need I need them to like roll up their sleeves, be involved, help help me with recruiting, help me with introductions, help me with um, uh, 
uh, just strategic advice, partnerships, all these, you know, adding their network. And that person is like, can make way more money with an existing company that's worth 3 billion, just going up in value by 50% versus you might have a valuation of 10 million and like them getting you from 10 to like, you're just not, a, you're, you're kind of, I call it a call option. Like you're just an option value. So you can have like, okay, if they grow and they're big, I'm, I'm in pole position to continue to maintain my percentage and invest. Yeah. Um, but in, in, in a world of, you know, what the one scarcity we all have is time, right? Like, yeah. I, I would just not saying that all people do this, but I would, and then the really good VCs just simply say, big or small, I have time for like four companies, right? Hmm. So I would, I would look at that, right? Like how much, you know, if, if, if assuming that's what you want. So if the, hmm. you're, hey, I want someone to roll, roll up the sleeves, get involved, you know, are they on 10 boards? I would be careful about that. Hmm. Interesting. And, uh, and, you know, on that note, I, I, just, I wanted to follow up on what, you know, Tiger and Index and uh, Anderson are, are trying to do. They're trying to build some hedge funds where uh, they're not taking a board seat, they're just putting a lot of money, especially in emerging countries like India, uh, and they're making very quick decisions to uh, to invest. Uh, and do you think they're just adding capital or do you think, uh, you know, going forward, that's a trajectory of how we see industries going where, uh, founders are looking at more capital, but not much, uh, you know, hands-on approach and, and help. Uh, just wanted your thoughts around that. My thoughts are uh, in trying to limit the, you know, every situation is different type of answer, but generally, yes, it's, they're just adding capital. Yeah. But that's not necessarily bad because if you can read, let's say you're pre-IPO and they're like, we're giving capital, but they're like, we're going to hold for like, you know, you get the sense like we're, we're, they call permanent capital, but like, hey, we're, we're in it for five years. We're going to be a stable part of your shareholder base. That's great. Mm, okay. I think that is actually sometimes a selling point for, for, for some of the, I'll call it kind of more financial investors, right, uh, at that stage. But yeah, usually it's, it's capital, but sometimes it's, uh, it's just money, but sometimes it's yeah. good because there is, they have a history of, you know, riding through the ups and downs and, and staying patient and doing pro rata and, you know, providing good signaling. That's, that's awesome. That's great. You don't need every investor to, yeah, you know, change the course of the company. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, so you, you've been running a fund and also you've been, uh, you've been part of some interesting companies. Uh, uh, before the call, we talked about uh, 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 treat optics uh, uh, you know, uh, you want uh, which is a cybersecurity company. You want to talk more about uh, about uh, this company and you know what what it got you excited about it and uh, you know uh, how how do you look at managing both as an operator role and as as a VC role? Great question. Yeah, Threat Optics is the name of the company. Uh, just uh, you know to view threats. The company does yeah. Linux security, and it is what got me excited was. The founder was the was a founder of Sentinel One, which uh, you know is a company I was very involved with, uh, both as an investor and an operator, and is now uh, is now public. So this founder is one of the three founders and uh, of that company. He's technically, you know, the, the most brilliant person I've ever met. Actually, uh, specifically to cybersecurity as well, like which technically in general. And so this was a little bit more of like no matter what what idea, like what he, what he was working on, I'd want to be part of it. Um, but on top of that, I think he identified um, through just deep, long experience in the industry, um, a legitimate, um, unprotected space. And that is the servers on which 
the entire internet essentially runs, whether it's inside an enterprise or whether it's a cloud service provider, almost everything runs on Linux uh, that's in the server space. And additionally, most IoT devices are going to run on Linux. They're not going to run, you know, Apple OS X or iOS or uh, or Windows. So when you look at, you know, where cars are going, where uh, 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 anything from uh, security cameras, all that stuff, they, they run Linux. Yeah. Um, and so the idea was, hey, you know, nobody's come up with a next uh, 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 detection. What we do is we detect and identify who the attacker is all at the same time on anything in Linux, anything that runs Linux. But initial target is servers. So uh, it's just an added layer of protection for your enterprise. Most companies already have like a firewall and then a laptop, you know, antivirus or endpoint security on their laptop. But um, Linux security is a, a big gap that we're trying to push after. And it's a huge market. If, uh, you know, if every Linux server were to uh, adopt our technology, it's a, it's a massive market. So that's what got me excited. Got it. And uh, is it specific to US or are you looking to expand? And uh, and what what is what is your role? Uh, are you looking at? A go-to-market strategy, building a go-to-market strategy. For enterprise, that's a great question, Rohit. And then for enterprise, usually US is where you start. That's typically when yeah. you get the, the the more robust IT budgets and you get um, the uh, early adopters of new technologies. You get you get buyers who are increasingly comfortable with trying something that's innovative. You know, from a startup. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so the U.S. is usually the go-to-market focus on the U.S. and then later Western Europe. You know, U.K. is very similar. Yeah. Uh, but you get, you get like, you know, uh, Western Europe after that. And then uh, India is the last place I would go. The very last place, honestly. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, India is a whole different story, especially for you know, those. Oh, we got hacked. Okay, well, how much did it cost us? If it didn't cost that much, well, how much we pay? Yeah, we're here. You know, there's a little more. Uh, I think it's just a little more. And there's a little more, just culturally, there's more willingness to, you yep. know, there's startups are like, a lot of startups have become worth uh, more than some of the incumbents in a short span of time. So, yep. yeah, right. So people here, I think the buyers here, just they're, they're in, just in that world, that ecosystem, in that culture a little bit more. So when we go, we don't get as much as like, well, how do we know where you're going to be around in a year, right? They're like, oh, you're solving this problem for me. Not, not many customers will say that, but you'll find more here that are willing to, you know, just kind of... Uh, uh, stick their neck out and, and try something that is solving a solving a legitimate problem, but doing it uh, you know doing it more innovative way than than an incumbent. Interesting. And uh, something I just quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book or uh, any other publication uh, that you read or listen to? I would recommend. Okay, so uh, I I personally I love to read. Uh, but for me, reading is a little, I, I just feel like I'm doing business all the time and I, and I'm interacting a lot with business leaders and, and learning a lot through some of these interactions. So, um, uh, I, I like, I kind of like, like that. And then, you know, with that finite time, when I read, uh, I usually like to read, uh, history books or not, I, I like a lot of nonfiction, but history or, uh, or books about, uh, innovation but not necessarily recommendations like do this. So in fact, one of my favorite, favorite authors is a, is a uh, compatriot of yours, a guy named Simon Singh. He wrote a great book called Codebreakers. 
yeah. which is I actually recommended it to every non-technical person at Threat Optics to read that book. So we're having a retreat and we're we're buying that book for everybody. Um, and it's just a history of cyber, what we now call cybersecurity, but the whole history of ciphering and deciphering and coding and decoding. Uh, and, and, and part of that story talks about the math behind it and then kind of where we end up now with, you know, public private key encryption and exchanges. So, uh, I, I recommend that one. It's called code breakers or the code breakers by Simon Singh. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and you know, if you could go back in time when you started building Trinite Hill or started investing, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? We, uh, I would have spent more time we so generically speaking more time on the companies that were emerging as winners as we were early stage right as companies grow you always want to help the ones that are floundering but at some point you have companies that are really just hitting it and you know they're hitting it and we i would have what i would have done differently is is just you know it, we always invest in, in, in continuously in 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 the follow-on rounds, but I would have done that more. I would have pressed the gas more on the winners, uh, precisely because of those dynamics that we were talking about. You know, another aspect is you're just getting these like very outsized outcomes. So if you're a smaller fund, you're in that. You know, and even if you're a bigger fund, you know, go all the way on the winners. Uh, spend less time on companies that uh, you know, there are companies where people did unethical things, and you know, just trying to squeeze like fifty cents out of the dollar on something is just not worth it. Uh, when you could spend that same time taking somebody who made your dollar worth 10 and trying to make that worth 20. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And, and do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, uh, Slack is, I just started I just started using Slack. I found that pretty pretty useful. Yeah. And uh, Zoom, uh, yeah, I, I guess, sorry for the boring answer there. Uh, I'm looking for a good whiteboarding tool. Uh, but uh, I think there's some applications on Zoom to do that. But uh, yeah, it's been mostly uh, mostly Slack. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, most of the guests do talk about Slack and Zoom because that's where we spend most of our time there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Granite Hill? It's good. Our website's uh, just granitehill.net, G-R-A-N-I-T-E-H-I-L-L.net. And... Uh, it's just my first name is my email, Samit, S-A-M-E-E-T at greatahill.net. Email is the best way, and I'm usually pretty responsive. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Samit, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you so much, Rohit. It was a real pleasure and, and some really terrific questions. So I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.